Before we, uh, before we read, let me pray the prayer of, of illumination. And before I do that, I just want to say what the wow factor is this morning. To listen to a choir do that, if that doesn't say at all, especially at Easter, the wondrous cross. Let us pray. Send your spirit among us, O God, as we meditate on your love. Prepare our minds to hear your word. Move our hearts to embrace what we hear and strengthen our will to follow your way. This we pray in Christ, through Christ, our Savior. Amen. So the Philippians that we're reading is from chapter 3, verse 4b, the second part, to 14 through 14, and it's found on page 1070 of the Pew Bibles if you wish to follow, uh, follow along. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, so as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death, if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this, but I have already reached the goal, nor have I reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I I have made it on my own. But this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to see what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Jesus Christ. The word of the Lord. Our gospel reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and it's on page 980 in your pew Bibles if you'd like to follow along. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. 
There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. And may God bless the reading and hearing of this holy word. Now, both of our scripture passages today appeal to our sense of smell to help us think about the stories they tell. But you might not realize it, though, in our first reading, Paul's discussion of his life and accomplishments. Evidently, Paul, once known as Saul, has been an exceptional Jew. A Hebrew born of Hebrews. In our Philippians passage, he gives himself quite an introduction. In a world without resumes, his is nevertheless very impressive, if slightly egotistical. After all, when I introduce myself to someone, I rarely list my whole history of church work, though over time people often get to know many of those things about me. And the truth is, if I wanted to brag, like Paul, I could. I mean, I could talk about 20 years or more as a professional educator and youth minister, 30 years almost in professional ministry altogether, writing curriculum, leading seminars, doing consultations for churches and presbyteries, chairing presbytery committees, and so on. When it comes to credentials like Paul, I've got a list. Of course, I suspect that most of you do too. Career lists, you know, all those good things you put on your resumes and the ways that you serve the world. Church work lists, all of the things that you've done in service to the church and the world. Gifts you've given, charities you've supported, mission trips you've gone on, Sunday school classes you've attended or taught. The church has a list, too. I mean, after all. Over 300 years of some kind of ministry in this very location. And over 70 of those years being with a full-time pastor associated with the Presbyterian Church. A long-term connection with the community, families who've had multiple generations baptized and raised here, countless baptisms, confirmations, funerals, vacation Bible schools, Sunday school lessons. In that amount of time, at least 10,000, maybe 12 or 15 have been preached, and I'd bet at least 40,000 hymns sung in some building on this property. This church has a list. But you know, it's when he gets through that whole list of accomplishments that Paul gets to the smelly part. Now, you can't almost smell the pride. It's true. But actually, after the list of accomplishments, Paul says, but you know what? All that stuff, 
is in my past. It counts for nothing more than refuse. And actually, right there, the word refuse, the word that Paul actually uses is scubula, which, to put it politely, is what comes out of the hind end of the animal. Yeah, and it's not the polite word we teach our kids either. Paul basically says he counts all of his accomplishments as smelly feces. Yep. So does that mean we're supposed to think of all our accomplishments that way too? No, fortunately. This isn't a proscriptive passage telling us how we're supposed to think or feel. Paul is using a literary device to get our attention, to get our focus in the right place. He's being dramatic and, yes, a little crude, much as TVs and movies do teasers in order to get our attention sometimes. Now, our gospel story also appeals to our sense of smell, and not just because of that perfume, but actually, first of all, we are told that Lazarus is there. You know, the guy who just got raised from the dead? Recently deceased Lazarus is sitting there at the table. As a matter of fact, in the King James version of the telling of the raising of of Lazarus story, when... Jesus invites the men to roll the stone away from the front of the grave. Mary protests and says, but my Lord, he stinketh. I always love that line. (laughs) Even if Lazarus has been all washed up now, the lingering scent of death still clings to him in this story. And there are other things that stinketh too. Judas' behavior and the gospel writer's anticipation of the coming betrayal have their own foul smell. But this then is changed when Mary, in an act of service and extravagant love, pours out a bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet and washes them, and the fragrance fills the whole house. No one can escape it. And this fragrance causes Jesus to exclaim that she has done what is right and good. In other versions of the story, he says it is beautiful. Mary wipes Jesus' feet then with her hair. And her use of her hair as a towel is an expression of deep love that those watching would find extraordinary and may have even made them somewhat uncomfortable with the intimacy of it. Our scripture passages today are ones that mess with our sense of value. The idea that Paul's accomplishments, and maybe ours, are scubula, are refuse, and Mary's use of a year's salary by pouring out a bottle of perfume on Jesus' feet and drying them with her hair messes with our sense of what is proper and right. Plus, while John makes a point of Judas asking his question for selfish reasons, we can sympathize at least a little bit with the question of the waste of so much money on what seems a worthless use compared to what those funds could be used for elsewhere. But sometimes our faith tells us to turn our values on their head. 
Now, Fred Craddock tells us the story of a missionary family that was being forced to leave their community. And the, the missionary and his wife had two hours, they were told, to decide what to pack. And they could only take 200 pounds with them. So they gathered their children and set to work debating what they actually had to take with them. What about this vase? It's a family heirloom. We can't leave that behind. Well, maybe so, but this typewriter, okay, old story. Typewriter is brand new, and we're not about to leave that behind. What about some books? We've got to take some of them along. On and on it went, putting stuff on the bathroom scale and taking it off until finally they had a pile of possessions that totaled 200 pounds on the dot. So when the soldiers came to take them to the train station, the soldiers asked, are you ready? And they answered, yes. Did you weigh your stuff? Yes, we did. 200 pounds? 200 pounds on the dot. Did you weigh the kids? Um, no. You might want to weigh the kids. And in an instant, the vase, the typewriter, the books all become trash. None of it meant anything in comparison to the surpassing value of the children. There are times in our lives when what had previously been of value to us comes to mean absolutely nothing. We're only too happy to leave it all behind in favor of what has become the most important value. Mary kneeling at Jesus' feet, and later Paul, have figured out what really matters, what truly is important. Judas, of course, is still missing the point, and like the disciples in other versions of the story, is trying to make himself look good. So he complains, Mary's out of line. Shouldn't this perfume have been sold and the money used for the poor? which is when we arrive at Jesus' statement that the poor will always be with you. Of course, we sometimes miss the point here, too. Poverty is not being encouraged by Jesus, and he is not identifying it as God's will. Jesus was clearly on the side of the poor and the oppressed and spoke angrily against any human system that maintained poverty. Jesus is not saying, nor did he ever say, that we should be happy about the fact that we will always have the poor with us. He just acknowledges the reality for his disciples and for Judas in particular, that they will have many opportunities to care for the poor, but that the opportunity to engage with Jesus in this life is nearly gone. They need to act now in response to Christ's presence among them. What Jesus and Mary seem to understand that the disciples and Judas do not is that Jesus is going to die. And by the time of this story, in a matter of days, in one sense, Mary has anointed his body for burial as the women seek to do again when they go to the grave on that Sunday morning of his resurrection. Like, Jesus, like Judas and the other disciples, we want to keep the fragrance of death away from ourselves. 
The idea that we have to physically die is something that we fight to the point that we spend huge sums of money trying to prevent death. And even as we sing about how important the cross is to us, the idea of Jesus' death is something that we resist and often gloss over, just as the disciples resisted it. Even now, as we prepare for Holy Week to begin, many churchgoers will next week go from Palm Sunday parades to Easter Sunday's Christ the Lord is Risen Today celebrations without bothering to find time during the week to hear the stories and be reminded of the painful ugliness of the death of Jesus. Yet we as Christians are not to avoid death. Rather, we are called to die with Jesus. For most of us, that is not a physical death, but rather, like Paul, we are called to die to the accomplishments and priorities of our lives and instead place our focus on Christ as the first and most important thing in our lives. Ahead of self, ahead of family, ahead of work, ahead of money, ahead even of those practices in life that we think we can pat ourselves on the back for. We are invited to let go of how important we think we are. We are asked as individuals and a church to forget what lies behind, to quit with the how it used to be and the focus on our accomplishments that are seen only through a rear-view mirror. In dying to those things, in putting God's call of today ahead of our own desires and priorities, we can, as Paul puts it, press on toward the goal of the prize of the heavenly call of God in and through Jesus Christ. So I encourage you today to press on towards the goal as Paul did. Engage the final days of this Lenten season as Mary did. Embrace your impulse to give abundantly, just as our God gives. Live and love deeply, fully, passionately, now, not someday. Serve God and others wholeheartedly. Love generously. Because as Paul reminds us, Jesus Christ has already made us his own. Not too long after this meal in Mary's house, Jesus gathered his followers around another supper table. And before their meal, Jesus tied a towel around his waist and washed his disciples' feet. Then he gave them a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. Even then, not all the disciples understood. Yet maybe as they experienced Jesus washing their feet, they remembered Mary bending over Jesus' feet like that and the extravagant gift of love that she had given. When Jesus had died, I wonder if Mary's hair still smelled of perfume, a gentle reminder of her last loving encounter with her Lord before he was risen. What will the smell of your gift to God be 
what will the fragrant offering of your life be as you lift it to God? I invite you to consider. Amen and amen.